Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Karen Tkach Tuzman, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Belinda Koch, Executive Editor. On today's pod, Bio is calling for flexibility from FDA on accelerated approval requirements. We discuss that and the trade group's other top priorities. Plus, what pending climate disclosure rules from the SEC mean for small biotechs, and a look at trends in venture financing in the past five years. But first, this week's BioCentury podcast is brought to you by BioEquity Europe. It's our 23rd iteration of the conference. It's scheduled to take place in Dublin, Ireland. May 14th through 16th. Please join BioCentury and EBD Group at this exclusive event for CEOs, investors, and biopharma decision makers. There's C-level networking, one-to-one meetings, company presentations, and a strategic program focused on developing a new playbook for biotech success in Europe. Learn more at bioequityeurope.com. And there's a week left to take advantage of the early bird pricing rate, which ends February 10th. We hope to see you in Dublin in May. Well, the Australian Open has wrapped up. Little suspicious that Simone chose not to join us. I know she's not the biggest uh, Djokovic fan, so do with that what you may. Steve, I know you're not here to talk tennis. You spoke with Rachel King last week. She's the interim CEO of Bio and so much more. She joins you on the BioCentury show to discuss the trade group's priorities. Uh, among the top priorities that she detailed was accelerated approval. What are Bio's specific concerns regarding the pathway, Steve? Well, well, you're right. We didn't talk about sports. Um, I don't know about Rachel. I'm certainly not capable of it. So the debate stems from language in the omnibus spending bill that gives FDA power to require that trials to confirm clinical benefit be underway at the time accelerated approval is granted. So the law says that FDA can do this, not that it must do it. And one of BIO's top priorities, Rachel said, and I was actually surprised by this, is preventing FDA from routinely requiring that trials confirming clinical benefit be underway before it grants accelerated approval. She said many small biotechs don't have sufficient funds to start confirmatory trials prior to approval, and that if FDA requires that, their companies um, simply aren't going to be able to meet the requirement. She didn't take it to the next the next step, but obviously that would mean that companies would have to either stop development of drugs or they would have to hand them off to better funded companies that could bring it across the the finish line. I think that the trade association's arguments are very unlikely to resonate at the agency. I'm thinking that in part because I spoke with some senior officials at FDA on background after I spoke with her. And the impression that I got is that FDA is likely to create guidance that will make it the default assumption that companies are going to have to do confirmatory trials, are going to have to have them underway in order to get accelerated approval. FDA officials believe that allowing sponsors to defer launching confirmatory clinical trials until after accelerated approval 
can create unacceptable risks for patients because it can increase the time ineffective or unsafe drugs are on the market. They've published data for cancer, which is 85% of accelerated approvals in recent decades, showing that when confirmatory trials were already underway at the time of approval, the period of time for withdrawing drugs because they weren't effective or weren't safe was about half what it was if FDA allowed companies to wait to start the trials until after approval. Well, even if it becomes the default, I imagine there will be instances where um, the agency will show flexibility and make some exceptions. Did it talk a little bit about what those might look like? Yeah, obviously. Look, they're not going to require this all the time. I think that um, for orphan drugs, especially for very rare conditions, it's unlikely that FDA um, would require it. There's sometimes when it's just simply not going to be possible. You know, if you've only got handful of people who have a disease or 20 people or 100 people, it could be just completely impossible to do a randomized trial to confirm clinical benefit, especially if the disease is heterogeneous. There could be other circumstances. If if a company comes in and they've got a, a totally unexpected, tremendous efficacy in phase two, and they hadn't started their confirmatory trial, it's going to take them some time to get it underway but patients really need that drug right now. I can't imagine that FDA is going to say, no, we're going to slam the brakes on. Nobody can get this drug until the company's got the confirmatory trial underway. So there are going to be circumstances when FDA isn't going to require it, but I don't think it would be smart to assume that that's going to happen very often. Right. And it sounds like something that can't be a rationale for an exception is the financial status of the company. Absolutely. So at the uh, Friends of Cancer Research Annual Meeting in December, Rick Pastor, the head of the Oncology Center of Excellence, really took that off the table. You know, he said that um, accelerated approval is not an incentive program for the pharmaceutical industry. He's used that exact expression numerous times. He also talked about how companies that don't have the financial resources to conduct confirmatory trials prior to approval. In his words, maybe they shouldn't be in the game. And he's also lauded the companies that have come in with comprehensive development packages for drugs that are approved under accelerated approval, particularly the PD-1 inhibitors. Um, he didn't name them by name, but he seems to be talking about uh, Merck and BMS, about Keytruda and Optivo. And you know, we've talked about that and written about that, how they had the resources and they deployed them to do huge numbers of clinical trials uh, simultaneously to have this, this big package of data collection to explore all the different possible or many of the different possible applications of the PD-1s, but also to confirm clinical benefit and to go as quickly as possible from accelerated approval to confirming their approvals. And in some cases, also to producing data that led to accelerated approval being withdrawn. All right. See, what are some of the other priorities that she highlighted for you when she spoke? The first thing that she said, I think unsurprisingly, is the drug price setting provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the second one was accelerated approvals, I mentioned. The third, capital formation. And the fourth, implementing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion policies across the biotech ecosystem. On the IRA, I think that the most productive thing that bio can do is to negotiate with 
CMS, or at least to discuss, have a dialogue with CMS over some of the uncertainties and how the IRA will be implemented, both because they might be able to influence what CMS does and because they can shed some light on, on what CMS is going to do for their members so companies can make plans accordingly. On capital formation, she talked both about the big picture of trying to improve the ecosystem in the United States for um, innovation, and then said that bio was going to push for specific tax incentives and other kinds of proposals that will help the smallest companies stretch the money that they've got further and make them more attractive for investors. I think the thing that she was most eloquent about was about DEI, and she said something very interesting. She said that the reason that bio is pushing for DEI policies across the biotech ecosystem is because, and this was her quote, diversity is a pathway to excellence. And she made the case and she said that basically when you've got diverse people around the table, when you've got diverse people in clinical trials, when you've got diverse people doing science, you're much more likely to achieve excellence than when you don't. And I thought that was a really important point and something that at least resonated for me. Yeah, it it really did, Steve. And uh, if you want to catch Steve's complete conversation with Rachel King, go to biocentry.com, the Biocentry show, 30 minutes, great conversation. She's a very engaging speaker on the pressing issues uh, facing industry. Well, speaking of pressing issues, I'd like to bring in Karen now. She wrote a pair of stories last week on environment, social, and governance policies among biopharmas. The SEC is expected to publish final climate disclosure rules for public companies this year. Karen, what does this mean for biotechs? What could these rules mean? Well, if these rules come into play similarly to how they have appeared in their draft form that was available for public comment, It's likely that a lot of companies will see new requirements and new topics they have to think about that weren't really front of mind before. And specifically, what the SEC has proposed is that all public companies include as part of their compliance reporting disclosures around their climate impacts. So that will include looking at things like the emissions that are produced as a result of their internal operations and the energy they purchase, but also what's called scope three emissions, which are the emissions that happen up and down their value chain, including uh, with upstream suppliers and downstream consumers. And this is something where whether or not you see this as a positive thing or, or not so much, What's definitely true is that this is likely to impact smaller companies differently than bigger companies. Large companies like pharmas, and we'll get to that in a bit, have been doing some form of this type of reporting for a while as part of their ESG reporting for investors. And they generally have the infrastructure in place already to collect this kind of data and report it out. There aren't hard and fast standards that everyone agrees on, but there are some uh, third-party frameworks that are generally shared. And so for bigger companies, it's sort of a a train that's already on the tracks. Um, 
where it will be, I think, a bigger impact is for smaller companies that don't have any of this type of reporting infrastructure in place at the moment. And the question is whether there will be any kinds of provisions that say smaller companies don't have to report as much information or information at all in the final rules uh, that come out. So I've got two questions. One, one is, are biotech companies and pharma companies significant contributors to, for example, climate change? And the second one is, how far downstream does this go? For example, are they going to look at all the flights to San Francisco for JP Morgan and say, you know, that meeting is a major contributor to climate change, and that has to be somehow taken into account by this reporting for all the companies? Well, again, I think that's where big companies and small companies likely differ. So um, an analysis in 2019 looking at big pharmas indicated that it, the industry is actually more climate intensive than the automotive industry. So not in terms of the total emissions they produce, but the emissions they produce per some units of activity. Uh, so at the pharma end of the spectrum, I think it's fair to say that the climate impact is actually pretty significant. For small biotechs, you know, uh, I imagine much less so, but there's some interesting sort of pieces, like I learned that propellant inhalers for COPD, for example, uh, the emissions from that are way more conducive to trapping heat than CO2, for example. So you can have a lot of impact from certain types of products. But the question around, you know, where do you count the flights and all of that? I, I think that is true because looking at and, and we can get to this in a second, how pharmas describe what they're doing on climate, things like travel and their commercial fleets and all that do factor into it. So the rules aren't written in stone yet. What are the prospects for getting them changed? What are the bio and um, pharma, if they're um, involved in this, trying to get changed? And what's the timing? When are we going to know what's going to happen? So uh, one piece that I think is potentially in play is around whether the rules will be any different for smaller companies. There is a piece in the draft rules that says smaller companies, as defined by the smaller reporting companies uh, definition, don't have to report scope three emissions. So there is that type of piece in place. And Bio, uh, which did weigh in uh, through its public comments, supported that and actually encouraged that smaller companies, uh, one, smaller reporting companies shouldn't actually have to report any climate emissions at all, arguing that the scope three is the biggest piece. So what's the point of reporting the remainder? Uh, but also to expand the definition of smaller reporting companies to include the sort of investor small cap companies definition of up to two billion. And while, you know, it's it's not clear how much the bio commons will resonate in the SEC's decision making, I did think it was notable that the SEC's own Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee did include in its public comment that perhaps scaling down and delaying compliance requirements for smaller reporting companies and emerging growth companies. So that's something to look out for when the final rules drop, which is targeted for April of this year. And presumably also we're going to see litigation. I mean, I've already seen stories from, I think, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and from some other people suggesting that they're going to sue about this. So I wouldn't expect that the rules are going to be the end of the story. Yeah. And, you know, speaking with BIO's head of policy, John Murphy, 
he thinks that this will be a somewhat iterative process, either through further rounds of proposed rulemaking, you know, or through modifications after final rules are in place, or it could be uh, also impacted by litigation as well. But he also said that he thinks, you know, given what we're seeing from European regulators as well and from individual states, whether or not the SEC's final rules kind of crystallize this right away, that this isn't an issue that's going away. This is something that public companies, including biopharma companies, large and small, will have to become more literate in and potentially build up expertise and infrastructure in. Karen, you also took a look at what pharmas are doing on ESG. What did you find? So in this case, I focused my analysis on what pharmas, and I looked at a sampling of 12 large pharmas, are doing uh, about climate and environmental goals specifically within their ESG reports. And it was interesting to see, first of all, that all 12 pharmas included basically some allusion to climate change as part of their list of material priorities, you know, suggesting that they really believe those climate change and and related issues have an impact not just to external stakeholders in society, but also to their business. But it was interesting to see, you know, these reports ranged in size and format, and there was a lot of differences between them. And so I tried to focus on what are they, what are some of the most concrete things that they're all saying that would be comparable? The thing that really emerged was that in general, these pharmas are staking out positions saying they're going to reach some type of emissions reduction goal by a certain year between now and 2050. In that analysis, I guess I would um, point out that Takeda, Sanofi, and Novartis stood out for each naming three separate uh, goals of increasing difficulty in emissions reductions, and that had deadline bounds to them, um, and that were on the more uh, aggressive side when compared to the rest of the pharmas. So I recommend checking that out. You know, for small companies that are starting to have to think about this, looking at what the big players in the space, well, you know, not a perfect template could be maybe a helpful starting point for understanding the kinds of things that biofarmers are thinking about when it comes to climate. All right. Thanks for that, Karen. Uh, Karen's stories are up on our website, two of them, one uh, focused on biotechs, one on pharmas. Let's turn to venture. Selena, you and our colleague Gunjan Ori took a close look at venture financings over the past five years. Any trends jump out at you? Yeah, well, we went into the analysis looking for possible effects of the terrible public markets last year on venture. So Gunjan dug into our BCIQ database. Hopefully some of you listening to this have access to that and have played with it. It's doesn't do everything for all people, but it has a wealth of finance information in it. So it allowed us to kind of slice and dice venture in in various ways. And so one of the first questions we asked was, well, if the IPO window is really what slammed shut (laughs) for most of 2022, um, then you have these private companies who maybe would have otherwise tried to go public that couldn't. So on aggregate, when you look at the, the numbers aggregated, will we see a trend toward more late stage series, like series C, series B. So 
we've seen in the past couple of years that crossover rounds get earlier and earlier with phase B becoming kind of your standard crossover round. Even some series A's being having crossover participation, you know, is that going to pendulum going to swing? Um, so we looked at all of the venture rounds in there last year by series, and we didn't find that. We actually found the distribution of them is pretty similar to 2021, 2020, but even, you know, going back a little longer. There's nothing in our numbers that can actually tell us why, but we talked to a lot of investors over here, especially my colleague, Stephen Hansen. And something, if you look across those conversations, that's kind of come up as a trend in recent years is investors funding companies for longer. Sometimes, you know, not just however many months it takes to get, to get to the next milestone, but well beyond the next milestone with some investors saying they routinely and trying to fund companies for three years. So, you know, one possibility is that we went into this with some pretty well-funded private biotechs who, if they had the means to, decided to wait it out. If that bears out, I think the interesting question is what's going to happen this year? Because the public markets are still in a downturn. We're, you know, not expecting it to get worse than it was last year, but it might not recover quickly. And meanwhile, cash is getting depleted. Might we see these numbers start shifting more, more going forward? Another slice we looked at was regional. I know you both looked at that, but what did you find? Is anything stand out for you guys? You know, I was very interested in what you looked at in terms of China versus Europe versus the United States. You know, the fact that China in lockdown pandemic year uh, had VC investments in the biopharma space that exceeded Europe's, I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Europe, I found it interesting that the UK's total of, I think, 1.2 billion was nearly as much as that of all of the EU, which saw, I think, about 1.6 billion in venture raised last year. You know, UK, obviously, one of the biggest hubs still, that's a, that's a lot of money there. Yeah, it sure is. And maybe just the overarching you know, the most basic conclusion is just that 2022 was a pretty good year for venture all around. I mean, yes, it fell. It was less than 2021 and, and less than 2020, but not that much less than 2020. And 2020 was a, was a record year at the time for biotech venture, and which was then beat by 2021's record. So we're comparing against some really, you know, big years here. Yeah. I mean, that raises the issue really We've kind of got the, what, the best of times, worst of times situation where you've got a lot of companies that are having a lot of difficulty in raising capital and concerns going forward. We talked about that in terms of what a bio's priority is going to be. At the same time, you've got VCs that have money and are going to invest it and are investing it. And you keep seeing new companies being formed and some of them with, you know, really large amounts of capital behind them. It's an interesting dichotomy. And as we all know, VCs have raised some record funds in the past couple of years. They're sitting on a lot of dry powder. So I'd expect innovative early stage companies to continue to attract that money. Well, thank you, Karen, Steve, Selena. Thanks for tuning in. We will be back next week. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Google, Apple, and Stitcher. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare 
and education.